This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. Arsenal had the chance to confirm Champions League football and they really didn't do it. After a good run, two defeats in a row mean that all Spurs have to do is not lose at the worst team in the league. Sounds exactly like the sort of thing Spurs could mess up. Last night, the Gunners couldn't cope with Newcastle. A brilliant atmosphere, a really good, well-coached side, buoyed by the return of Callum Wilson. How well could they go next season? And has pretty much every media outlet stopped talking about, you know, where the money comes from? Because it kind of ruins the feel-good factor to talk about it. Also, Huddersfield make it to the playoff final after a tense win at home to leave Faye Carruthers' dreams in tatters. Off the pitch, a landmark moment in British football. 17-year-old Blackpool centre-forward Jake Daniels becomes the first active male professional footballer to come out publicly as gay. Should we simply celebrate it or ask serious questions about why it's taken so long and how accepting men's football is of gay people? Also today, Chelsea's sale hits that Roman wants his money snag again. Shock as Infantino hires someone convicted of embezzling $10 million a few years ago. You've asked some questions Lawyers at the ready, this is the Guardian Football Weekly. Fraser says, is this your Manchester dress rehearsal? Can we ensure that Philippe gets sufficiently agitated for his Rabiot repertoire over the next month, starting tomorrow, please? Uh, Philippe Auclair, welcome. A very good morning, good afternoon or good evening to you, Max. Uh, hello, Barry Glendening. Hello, Max Rushton. And happy Norway Day, Lars Sivertsen. <laughs> Yay, Good morning spent most of my childhood like playing in the school brass band and stuff so norway day meant you had to march around in parades and and play play music which i was never that fond of uh, so so it's not a day that i have very you know positive oh, memories from to be it's honest bitter, it's a bittersweet day of you marching around the fjords playing the tuba well, yes, um, frightening the horses and stuff like that. But uh, and, um, the day before is kind of like our boxing day, the day when all, everyone goes to the football. Uh, so we had huge attendances in Norwegian football yesterday, and uh, uh, which was good to see. Let's start not in the Norwegian top division, but at St. James' Damn Park. <laughs> Paul says, is it just me or does challenging Spurs to fail to get a point at Norwich on the final day of the season? Just too irresistible a challenge. Like, like calling Marty McFly a chicken. I mean, Champions League, <laughs> Champions League qualifications come and go, but this is a chance to write themselves into Spursy legend. Um, Edward says, all Spurs have to do now, all we have to do is not lose to a team that have been awful all season already relegated. Is this the worst possible scenario for Spurs? Uh, Simon, is there a Spurs fan in the land who doesn't expect Norwich to play like prime Real Madrid on Sunday. Uh, meanwhile, meanwhile, some questions from Arsenal fans. Uh, David says, if I keep banging my head against the door, will it help? Uh, De, Haai, <laughs> De Haai says, was the real fourth place position the friends we made along the way? <laughs> and Christian says, just please don't edit down Philippe's rant about Arsenal. Philippe, how do you feel after that game last night? Um, I'm, I'm a bit deflated. Um, I don't have uh, the feeling an injustice has been done. Um, a disappointment, I think, is the main thing, Max. Um, not the defeat in itself, but the manner of the defeat. Uh, I think the comments that Granit Xhaka uh, made after the game pretty much summed up what um, I think most people who followed uh, the game uh, with their heart perhaps leaning towards the Arsenal side would agree and that the players didn't look really as up for it as the Newcastle player did. And it, it looked as if Newcastle were actually fighting for a place in the Champions League and not Arsenal. So yeah, disappointment more than anything. Surprise, perhaps not. It's a team that is so that has been so inconsistent over the season that I wouldn't say you'd come to expect that. Uh, but you had the feeling that uh, in a way, um, the, the harm was done a little bit before, notably in this series of three defeats, you know, um, not that long ago, uh, which put them in a, in a difficult situation. But not not really uh, the best of performances. In fact, given 
the circumstances, given um, what was at stake, perhaps the worst performance of the season? I guess last. I mean, Chris asked the question saying, did any Arsenal fans really think they would finish higher than fifth at the start of the season? If not, do they have any right to be disappointed to finish there at the end of the season? Or do you say they didn't look up for it yesterday and that is a problem when you've got such an amazing opportunity? I'm sure there were quite a lot of fans who were expecting more because like all clubs with a lot of fans, a, a certain section of that fan base is quite delusional. But, but I think if you look at what, what the club is right now, they're in the middle of a, of a kind of a rebuild. I mean, they have the fifth biggest wage bill in the league anyway, so finishing fifth is, is just kind of par for the course. If you're finishing above that, you're overperforming a little bit. If you're finishing under that, you've done very badly. Uh, but, but I think you've got to bear in mind, last summer they, they signed a bunch of players who were all on the young side with, with the idea of kind of building for the future a little bit. So I don't think anyone were... <laughs> anyone who's not in the sort of massively head in the Arsenal bubble or too surprised that Arsenal are going to finish fifth this season. I think that's pretty much par for the course. Some frustration in that United being as, as much of a disaster as they have been have left the door open for Arsenal or Spurs to sneak in. And I'm sure Arsenal fans would have hoped they would be the best equipped to do that. But, but yeah, they're in a sort of process of rejuvenation. Uh, I think seeing sort of Arteta out trending last night <laughs> was quite quite mad I mean really all things considered and I also think we talk about mentality and I think if you look at the games they lost that that makes sense but it's also just kind of a lack of squad depth there as much as we laughed as much as we laughed about them having to postpone a game against Tottenham earlier after having, you know, sent a couple of players away the week before and then suddenly, oh, God, we can't field the team now. I mean, that was very funny, but it should have also maybe been an alarm bell in terms of actually this squad is really thin and maybe we should add a player or two before going into the second half of the season. And they didn't do that. So when you got the injury to Tierney and to Party, suddenly you're just looking at the options you're left with and like, it's not great. So I, I just think the, uh, the lack of depth did them in the end here. Ian says, does any manager do the Christ on a bike, please just let the ground open up, emotionless 50-yard vacant stare into the abyss better than Arteta? He does look sad when it's going badly, Barry. But but how do you judge his season? I suppose overall it's been okay insofar as people probably didn't expect Arsenal to finish fifth, and they have. But when you look at how bad Manchester United have been and people probably weren't expecting that 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 should have bumped Arsenal up a notch I suppose I I think that result is an absolute disaster for them it's a it's a classic Arsenal textbook Arsenal if you need to go to St James's Park to play this new rejuvenated incarnation of Newcastle and win and you know, if you go and play well and lose, fair enough. But they they didn't turn up. They were absolutely awful, and uh, they have a reputation for being spineless, gutless, uh, having a soft underbelly. And we saw that last night. They, it was, in my opinion, a, a cowardly performance uh, against a team who had nothing to play for, but are clearly enjoying themselves at the moment. Yeah, I, I, I think it's a disaster for them. I'd just like to say for the record, they haven't definitely finished fifth yet. I'm telling you, we'll get on. We'll get on <laughs> <Yeah>. to. <laughs> um, I, meanwhile, Philippe, Newcastle were excellent. Callum Wilson was superb. Um, you know, Gimaresh looks like a wonderful player. They, they played incredibly well. I, I think Gimaresh is, is the one. And last was talking about um, bringing reinforcement uh, uh, in January. We've got to remember that Newcastle were actually, of all the clubs on the planet, the ones who actually spent the most on the transfer market, uh, both gross and net. And uh, the fact that he's a super player and that they got him on the cheap, I think was already clear at the time. And we had confirmation of that. He can be, he can be a transformational player uh, as far as um, you know they're concerned. And obviously... Uh, Eddie Howe has done the. Um, he's doing some good work as well on the training ground. As well, they've got impetus. They're on a really good series of results, and so on and so forth. They were also um, encouraged by pretty. I mean, extraordinarily vocal uh, St James crowd. Again, uh, seemingly, it, it seems that the prospect of becoming a big club 
uh, is something which is enough to give them the kind of energy that you would normally reserve for a great occasion, like when the title is at stake or a qualification for Europe or something like that. They've got that going for them at the moment. And yes, and they were very easy on the eye as well. There were some, I mean, some combinations, some phases of play, which honestly <laughs> you would not associate with Newcastle normally. But, you know, um, you get, you know, Lars was saying fifth uh, wage bill for Arsenal, fifth place probably. Uh, that's logical. Uh, for Newcastle, you invest 100, well, you invest, you spend 120 million quid uh, in January. You get what you paid for. That's as simple as that. When you've got a decent structure in place, and I mean at least on the field, because when it comes to what is happening off the field, I think we'll have an occasion uh, to perhaps uh, delve on this a little bit later on in the, in the podcast. I was looking up at the wonderful transfer market website and 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 they're sort of searching. Basically, uh, since the summer of 2019, so the last two and a half seasons, uh, Newcastle have the sixth highest net spend in the world uh, in terms of transfer fees uh, spent minus transfer fees recouped. So they have a higher net spend than Bayern Munich, Juventus, Paris Saint-Germain and Barcelona. Uh, in the last two and a half years. So it really is a true underdog story that they've managed to sort of <laughs> uh, claw, claw their way to 12th in the Premier League. You have to say, uh, not anyone could have achieved that sort of thing on that kind of budget. Callum Wilson, I thought, looked really good, Barry. Um, D- Dougie said, would Baza be able to keep that tooth in? The thought of carrying on playing when your tooth had fallen out. I'd just be in agony. I don't know how he managed to do that. Well, I've never had a tooth knocked out, so I, d- I don't know. Uh, how painful it is or is not. But yeah, I'd just be quite upset by the fact that I've had a toot knocked out. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm not sure I'd have my head in the game after that. So fair play to him. But it, it just, I suppose it goes to show how injury prone he is because it's such a rare injury and he's been out for months. He comes back and then he has a toot knocked out. And I... I I didn't know until yesterday um, that if you put it straight back in, it the gum will seal around it and you, you don't have to get a a new tooth or a false tooth. So uh, that, that Wait, was is a that true experience for me. Yes. Jesus, because I, I was going to say, I was in the pub and there was a fellow who just kept shouting, just pop it back in, fam, pop it back in. And I just thought that cannot be true. Like medically, that can't be the way to do this. But apparently... Yeah, 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 no, it is. Yeah, yeah. If that's if that is the case, then you know to shift some more tickets at Birmingham, Barry. Would you allow people to come on stage and knock, have a go at knocking your tooth out? Because we could just <laughs> shove it back in it, and it would be totally fine. But to be honest, I have terrible teeth, so I'd quite like if people want to knock my teeth out, I'll just get new, <laughs> you know, cleaner, nicer oh. teeth that are straight. Oh, fine. You'd get clopped. I, I'd like the idea of Barry as full Jurgen Klopp or Bobby Firmino uh, next year. James says, why are broadcasters intent on making the audience feel for Newcastle and be happy for their inevitable Champions League challenge? Considering their ownership, it makes it hard, yet apparently we shouldn't think this. And Richie says, can the pod tell me how I should feel as a Newcastle fan of 30 plus years? At the moment, I feel the most euphoric and positive I ever have, but it's always tinged with a certain caveat you seem intent on repeating. What is the right feel if it were your club, you'd do X, but it's not. Tar, Philippe. Well, that's a hard question, isn't it? Mm. Um, I think that, in a way, he's already answered his own question. If he's feeling that unease, is because the unease is real and totally justified. And I will say, if this is one thing that the Newcastle fans have to deal with, well, so be it, because at least they're aware of where they are now, where they're going, of uh, they're aware of the nature of um, their ownership, what it stands for, why they're there. So at least there's a degree of self-awareness, which I wish, which I wish was shared perhaps um, more widely around the support, because that's not the uh, that's not the feeling I get when I look at the comments on social media and so forth. Yeah, I mean you you should feel you should feel really uneasy, and you should feel seriously about your loyalty to the shirt. I mean. What more can I say about that, honestly? I mean, it's if you embrace it completely, um, you become an accomplice. We've talked about this before. It's true of other clubs, but it's probably truer of Newcastle than it is of any of the other clubs which have been taken over by a nation state. Um, So, yes, feel uneasy because that's exactly the way you should feel. 
you shouldn't be too happy and too proud. Spurs only need a point from their last game, as we've mentioned, away at rock bottom Norwich. Um, Chelsea guaranteed a Champions League spot because of that result. I mean, it would, Barry, and I even say this as a Spurs fan, be quite spectacular if, you know, the scenes were of Harry Kane holding his shin pads, looking mournful, applauding the away end at Carrow Road, saying it just wasn't quite enough. <laughs> Timu Puki played a blinder. I, I think if Spurs somehow managed to lose against Norwich, it would be possibly the funniest thing <laughs> I've ever seen in the history of football. But I've I've watched Norwich play quite a lot this season and they are so, so bad. It is inconceivable. I think that Spurs could mess this up. But, lads... It's Tottenham. You're, yeah, you're giving me hope, Barry, here. <laughs> you really are giving me hope. Did you say the funniest thing since PSG's elimination, of course? <laughs> Nor- Norwich have only won three games at home all season. And it's not just that they're poor, but they're poor in a way that should be manageable for Tottenham because they're not a team that just sort of sits back in a low block and closes off everything, which this Tottenham team kind of struggles with sometimes. They're actually a little bit lucky to actually get through Norwich. Uh, sorry, Burnley at the weekend. But what Norwich do is they do they do like to attack and leave some space, which Tottenham, you know, that they usually exploit. That's so it, it really couldn't be more perfect for them, which of course means they'll definitely fuck it up somehow. I mean, this <laughs> it's, it's the history of the well, Tottenham. I place all my hope lies in. It, I place all my hopes in the visit to the local <laughs> Italian restaurant. I mean, they've got very good lasagna there, so it can still happen. <laughs> uh, we'll find out when we uh, next Sunday. Um, uh, uh, before we go, um, uh, an on-air apology to Socrates and to Greece yesterday. Uh, I mentioned that uh, Simikas was the first Greek to win the FA Cup. He wasn't. Socrates won it for Arsenal in 2020. Thank you to the people who very politely pointed it out. No thank you to the people who thought this was the biggest mistake anyone had ever committed in the history of football. Um, But yes, uh, this pod is dedicated to Socrates and his FA Cup win. And uh, that'll do for part one. In part two, we'll discuss uh, Blackpool's centre-forward Jake Daniels being the first Uh, male British active footballer to come out. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at borough.com slash ACAST. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. David says, hi, Max. I'm sure the panel will be covering it in detail, but as a gay football fan, I just wanted to add to the plaudits Jake Daniels has received for taking the courageous decision to come out. How do the panel think this decision will impact football in the years ahead? Uh, Yeah, he becomes uh, the UK's first active male professional footballer to come out publicly as gay. The 17-year-old is the first publicly gay man in British men's football since Justin Fashionu. He gave his first interview to Sky Sports. He said, I told my mum and my sister the day after we played Accrington and I scored four, so it just shows how much of a weight off the shoulders it was as a massive relief. Uh, let's bring in Chris Powros, broadcaster, journalist uh, from Proud Lily Whites as well and from Kick It Out. Hey, Chris. Hey, Max. How are we doing? Very good. Look, we've already talked about the uh, Newcastle-Arsenal result. We've already talked about quite how possible, although depressing it would be from our point of view, if Spurs managed to mess it up uh, <laughs> at Carrow Road. Um, so look, let's talk about Jake Daniels. In the grander scheme of things, it's a, it's a much... Um, bigger story. What do you make of it? Well, I think it's it it is it is momentous, and at Kick It Out, we sort of wholeheartedly congratulate Jake Daniels on coming out. He's got our full support, and obviously at Kick It Out, we'll continue to do everything we can do to make football a place where he feels welcome and one where any men's player coming out need not be huge news. Um, and it's definitely something to be celebrated. You know, here's a confident and joyous young man full of pride. 
And those are things that I love to see. But like all of us, I imagine he won't want to be defined by this one moment or this one part of his identity. Because as well as being a gay man, he's a football player, a son, a brother. And we all bring our multiplicities to everything we do. But it's wonderful that he can bring his whole self to football. You'll have all seen the the um, interview. And he said that he scored four goals in the game after he came out to his mum and his sister. And, you know, he felt free. He had a lovely smile on his face in the interview when he talked about it. And I don't think you can underestimate that weight that's lifted when you do come out. And you can see just from that little anecdote from from Jake, it unlocks your potential and it's a liberation. And it will potentially be life-changing for some people. But equally, I wouldn't want to put all that pressure on one 17-year-old because what he's doing is he's living his truth, which is great. And, you know, all you can do is or like all of us, is to try and do the things to create the conditions where football is a place where people can be themselves, whoever they are. It leads to the question, I guess, which is how accepting of gay people of the LGBTQ plus community is men's football? Like, How accepting do we think it is? And does this, does this change anything in a grand scheme? Or is this just, you know, how important is this moment for that? I think it's, it's another step on a in a journey, right? Because men's football has been changing for years now. You know, if I think about when the Proud Lily White started eight years ago in 2014, we've been on a real journey. You know, the Rainbow Laces campaign, the Football versus Homophobia campaign, you know, there's stuff that goes on in football every year and fan groups that are up and down the country that have come to something to sort of normalise in the fact that the LGBTQ plus community are part of the football community. You know, when we started the Proud Lily Whites in, in 2014, we were one of four LGBTQ plus fan groups. There's now more than 50 and a Pride in Football network that's kind of burgeoning and thriving up and down the country. You know, Fans Diversity Campaign, which is a campaign that's co-run between the Football Supporters Association and Kick It Out, you know, that's a, a, a campaign that's all about bringing underrepresented um, groups into football. You know, groups who might think that football isn't necessarily for them, whether those are LGBTQ plus fan groups or fan groups that are organised around race and ethnicity. People who wouldn't think that, you know, that one of the great groups in fans diversity are the Bangla Bantams. You know, they, they're literally, you know, there's a Bangladeshi community right on the doorstep of Bradford City Football Club and, and that community never went to football because they didn't feel like it was for them. And fans diversity brought them in and that's all been happening in the last eight years. So I think this is just another step on the journey. But I think, you know, good for, good for Jake because you could just see that he wasn't going to live in fear or live lies. Mm, and actually on that, Philippe, I, I, part of the beautiful thing about this is the fact that he's 17. You know, he, he hadn't... He, he feels comfortable and comfortable to do it at such a young age. Yes, absolutely. And, and perhaps in this case, Chris, please um, correct me if I'm wrong, but the greater acceptance of, of difference among younger people perhaps is also a factor in this, that he felt confident enough to go forward. Obviously, he talked to his family, he's probably talked to close friends about that. And there is much more acceptance amongst younger people than there is, again, you know, amongst the older generation where... To be honest, it's something that would have been completely unthinkable just five to ten years ago, perhaps. Within the microcosm of, of men's football, there are players of whom it is known that they are gay, right? I don't think it's giving away a great secret to do that, which is obviously normal. There has to, there has to be. And some of whom have been uh, only feel confident to talk about it when they retire. I'm thinking Olivier Rouillet, the, the French player, who had to wait until actually almost he, he ended up his career as, as a manager as well before he felt confident enough to say that because he came from this older generation. So yes, 17 years old on, and all the more, all the braver, by the way. And uh, I think that also the, the way that he's spoken, he's expressed himself as I think the joy of it and also the fact that he clearly says that most important thing for him now is that he's going to be able to do what he loves most with a completely free mind. I mean, what? Uh, I mean, yes, let's not put uh, too much weight on his shoulders, but let's thank him uh, for doing what he's done because I think not, it's not just the message, it's the way in which he's delivered it is going to be tremendous encouragement to, to many, many other young players and maybe not so young players around the country. So let's hope he's the first of, of many who feel safe enough, perhaps, 
um, to come forward and to uh, simply live their lives as they should be able to live it. I think you're spot on there, Philippe. And, and you're right about, I think, the generational thing. I think Ipsos did a some global research last year and it showed something like, I don't know, 18% of 16 to 25 year olds, so Gen Zers ostensibly, don't uh, count themselves as not straight, whatever that is. But then more broadly for all the other um, uh, age groups, it was 9%, so it was cut in half. So it just goes to show that with young people, and I think you see this in football now, if you look at the Gen Zers that were in the England team, for example, in the Euros, and what that kind of, you know, what their openness and what their value base was um, last summer, you know, I, I think that's something to do with, you know, that that generation of young people and that they won't accept a lot of the stuff that some of that, you know, that some of us have accepted before. Perhaps you're right. You know, this is celebratory, huge amount of respect for him will be life changing for a lot of people. There'll be there'll be some young, you know, he said that he first knew when he was when he was very young. He pretended to have girlfriends because he thought that was the right thing to do. And there will be there will be boys up and down the country now who are feeling the same thing and think, oh, I don't have to hide. I don't have to pretend. And that's that's enormous. There's something I quite like to put to, to Chris, because you obviously think about this more than I do, and you're more eloquent on the subject. Uh, I'm sort of split on this in the sense that, in one way, it makes total sense that he's now a super important reference point for a lot of young uh, people and young players, and even older players maybe, who who feel, you know, this is something you can be open about. and and this is very important. But there's also a side of me that wants to almost like not hear him referenced as the gay footballer ever. I just, I hope we're at a stage where he can just be a footballer who is honest about the people he fancies and like everyone else can be and that, that it almost shouldn't be a big deal in that regard. I think, again, you're spot on. And that's why I was saying earlier, I don't think it should be the only thing that defines him because I think he wanted to just be himself and not have to, you know, I think he found, he from that interview, actually, let's let's pull back a second. From that interview, I think he probably felt the same way. He sort of thought, actually, I know who I am, so I'm just going to get on with it and play my football, as Philippe's just said, but also recognise that he may have some responsibility. You know, he's 17, he's a championship player. It's not, you know, it's, quite, it's a big competition, the championship, you know, and he's obviously signed his professional forms, he's signed with Adidas, he's done, and he thinks, actually, I can be a role model. And we know how important role models are because you can't, you know, it's an old adage, but you can't be what you can't see. You know, he's feeling like that's something that he could do. But as with all of these things, coming out is a very personal thing. And, you know, people do it at different times in their lives, um, you know, for different reasons, when they feel comfortable. So, you know, I think it just what it does is it, it, it gives some kind of tacit permission for those who might have felt that it's not it's not there. But, you know, the obligation is on all of us to make sure that that Jake Daniels feels as supported as possible. Um, and also for all, and the fact that we're having this conversation, you know, with with all of you guys, which is wonderful, that football can genuinely be inclusive of the LGBTQ plus community. Chris, um, I find it it's slightly weird in that in, in the women's game, there are loads of openly gay women. No one, just no one cares. It doesn't even merit a mention. And I think it would be naive to think that Jake is not going to, at some point, encounter abuse whether it's from opposition fans or opposition players or people on twitter or whatever i remain baffled that it's such a big deal am, am i naive well i think you only have to look at the rise in homophobic attacks in this country in the last uh, 12 to 24 months to know that there's still something that we have to contend you know homophobic and transphobic actually that we have to contend with on a daily basis. And I think the, the the comparison with the women's game is interesting, but actually what you're talking about there is kind of gendered st gender stereotypes, right? Because actually, and, and Jake, um, Jake Daniels said this himself, you know, if you're gay, it's, you're perceived to be weak, in inverted commas. Now, we know that's nonsense, and those are the stereotypes that he's breaking. And it's, the, and it's almost the flip side of stereotypes that you get in women's football. It's like women who are playing football, because they're sporty, somehow it must make them a lesbian. So it's not a story. Now, of course, there are many lesbians in women's football. There are also very many straight women. <laughs> Because this is the stereotypes that limit us all. And so, yeah, I don't want it to be a big deal either. I, want, I would like 
for us to be in a situation where, you know, two, uh, many other male footballers come out or even they don't even have to come out. They can just get on with their lives. During Easter, Ash Neville, who is a Spurs women's player, did an Easter egg hunt around the stadium um, with her wife and their children. It was all over the, the, the um, Spurs social media. Nobody batted an eyelid. They all had a lovely time. Now, that would be nice. You know, the Spurs players did a lap of appreciation on uh, on Sunday and they brought out their families, their partners. You know, Eric Dyer had his nieces and nephews out there. You know, in next year, the year after, the year after that, if you there are, in those situations, gay men and their partners come out, that it's not a news story. Yeah, that would be great. But sadly, these things are news stories because we're still breaking stereotypes and taboos, even in 2022. But that's what part of this and part of the work the Proud Lily Whites do and the work that, um, that Kick It Out does and the work that FVH do, uh, you know, Stonewall have been supporting Jake Daniels through all of this. It's all part of creating those conditions. Sure. Um, uh, the story contrasts by one concerning uh, Idrissa Garner Gay from the weekend. Uh, RMC reporting that he did not want, according to their information, to play with a jersey with a rainbow flag for the day of fight against homophobia and in support of the LGBTQ plus community. Ahead of the win over Montpellier, PSG posted a picture of their away kit featuring the rainbow flag um, on World Day Against Homophobia. Our jerseys will have the rainbow flag, symbol of peace and diversity of the LGBT movement. Read a statement. Idrissa Garner Gay's representatives denied he boycotted the fixture last season, have yet to release a statement on his absence on Saturday. Maurizio Pochettino said after the game, Idrissa made the trip to Montpellier, but for personal reasons, he had to leave the match sheet, but he was not injured. Philippe, your thoughts? In France, as you can imagine, uh, it's a a big, big, big story. Um, It's a very, um, as I said, the contrast couldn't be starker. Now, there are two things at stake here for me. One is the attitude of the player. Uh, who refuses um, to endorse this uh, show of solidarity on one hand, and you could argue that he's right. Uh, You could argue that it's in 2022. Uh, That's not exactly the right message to convey if you're a professional player and you are with whether you like it or not, a kind of role model. I hate it, but that's the way it is. But you could, and add, I'm, I'm really happy that Chris is here with with us because I've been thinking a lot about this and I've been thinking about the hypocrisy because the club, PSG, is owned by a country in which homosexuality is criminalized. Even homosexual homosexuality between males is punishable by death uh, if it is uh, if the acts have been committed by male uh, nationals. Now you can hear that I'm a little bit angry about all this because it shows again the duplicity of PSG, but it shows again has how football um, sports washing washes very widely indeed. Because, and that's why I, I want to ask Chris, is it time to actually question those shows of solidarity which implicate clubs and teams that we know are the offspring or the expression of regimes where homosexuality and transgender people as well are the subject of terrible discrimination and punishment. And in a way, we allow them, when they join these kind of movements, to present an image of themselves, which is totally contrary to reality. Because there's a very big difference between um, an individual act and and, and a team act. You know, uh, as if, for example, refusing uh, to take the knee which some players have done, some teams have done as well. This is like if you give PSG or Manchester City or Newcastle United the opportunity to take part in such a show of solidarity, you're allowing them to lie. You're allowing them to present an image of themselves which is not right, which is the image that they want to project of themselves whilst they continue doing what they're doing in their own backyard. And people say, well, that's wonderful, that's so-and-so. You know, it's like, for example, I mean, PSG are, are partnering with three different um, anti-discriminatory bodies in, in, in France, which is an absolute joke as far as I'm concerned. It's just like, for example, FIFA and racism. On one hand, it's all about armbands, shirts, T-shirts, messages, 
a certain type of language which is all about respect. But then when FIFA is actually confronted with racism in stadiums, fails to act accordingly. Just the same way it fails to react when confronted with cases of sexual abuse. Perhaps it's time to think about how we show our solidarity. Chris, what do you think? I think that we live with these contradictions every day in football and in our wider in in, every, in our wider kind of lives as consumers. Actually, I don't think it's okay. I think that uh, that sports watching is real, <laughs> but I also think you hold a cognitive dissonance, right? But oh. we're both we're both things exist at the same time. Personally, and these are not the views of the Proud Lily Whites of Kick It Out or of anybody else, because I haven't discussed it, I haven't discussed it with them, so I'm not talking on behalf of, of any organisation. I find it really difficult. I find it really difficult that you have, as Philippe's just said, nation states that can, you know, put people to death, able to, to make those kinds of statements. However, we also live in a country where we just had a Queen's speech last, last week where you put a ban on conversion therapy, but only partially. So we're just allowing trans, we've just, you know, we've thrown trans people under a bus. So I think that's where the cognitive dissonance is, is because you'll also have the government support, supporting Pride, I'm sure, when Pride Month comes around. Then what? You know? So I think from a football perspective, the, the, the solidarity is important because it's about what you're out there saying. And it's what, what you're out there saying also in the countries in which um, the owners, the, from which the owners come. You know, because there is a, a rainbow flag on, on, on PSG. The hypocrisy I, found, I find very, very difficult, though. I find it very, very difficult that you have, you know, people who are in danger in their own country, somehow being celebrated somewhere else. But if you look back to Adam Crafton's piece in The Athletic, um, when Newcastle took over, he highlighted the plight of a young man called Sahail Al-Jamil, and Max, we've talked about him before. And one of the things that the um, LGBTQ plus Saudis talked about when they spoke to Adam, that was all, you know, highly confidential and, and anonymous, was they said, we want you to keep talking about it. So I guess the the thing that we can at least do, uh, you know, and, and I'm pleased that Philippe's brought this up, is when we're talking about, about PSG and when we're talking about Newcastle and we're talking about Manchester City, is that we can talk about the people in the countries in, that are affected here and, you know, highlight what their plight is and do what we can, like we do here around the trans conversion uh, bill to, 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 to make these points again and again and again to try and apply the pressure and make sure that people know they haven't been forgotten. Chris, it's always good to talk to you. Thanks so much for coming on. Uh, we'll speak to you soon. Thanks, guys. Uh, Chris Powers there, um, and that'll do for part two. Part three, uh, we'll look at uh, Huddersfield beating Luton, uh, talk about Chelsea's ownership and any other business. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Um, buy tickets to see us live. Dan says, not a question. I'd love to see Barry boil an egg in four minutes and 39 seconds at the live show in Leeds. Um, are you up for that, Barry? Uh, I'm just trying to keep track of all the things I have to do now. I have to wear a Superman costume in Birmingham. Boil yeah, while having your teeth knocked out. <laughs> yeah, being punched in Birmingham. And I yeah. think ideally uh, soil myself everywhere. <laughs> because it's God, what, no. what the people want. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> anyway, 13th of June, Leeds. Jonathan Wilson, John Bruin. Um, 15th of June, Birmingham. Jordan Jarrett Bryan, John Bruin. Manchester, the 19th. This very panel, Lars Sivertson, Philippe O'Claire. Dublin, the 4th and 5th of July, Lars Sivertson, Mark Langdon. Hackney. Uh, Troy Townsend, Jonathan Wilson, Nicky Bandini, Hackney the 9th, Ellis James, Barney Ronay, Sid Lowe, and Glasgow the 13th, Philippe Clare and Jonathan Wilson. Go to myticket.co.uk. Huddersfield 1, Luton nil. A sad day for Faker Others as the sun sets on Luton Corner for another season. I mean, it was a great game, Lars. It could have gone either way. And I guess... You've got to feel for Luton because it is so unlikely that they will get this chance again. Yeah, I was I was watching both this and the Arsenal game in the pub, and you'll be surprised to hear, all things considered, that my my gaze was drifting 
towards this game more so than the other one. As much as I, I enjoy an Arsenal implosion as much as the next man, arguably more than the next man. Uh, but, I, <laughs> but, this, but this was actually quite engrossing, uh, perhaps because I was at the first leg. I was at Kenilworth Road, uh, which I know you mentioned in the last pod, but, but it was a real privilege to, to be there on that occasion. It was obviously a complete sellout, but just an incredible atmosphere. And, and, and there was quite a lot of chat about whether... Kenilworth Road would be fit for purpose in the Premier League and maybe not but in terms of media facilities or whatever but I can tell you that in terms of for match going fans it's an incredible place to watch football and the atmosphere was a real throwback completely different vibe to what you'll get in the Premier League it was an incredible uh, experience Um, and watching this Luton team so, so I have this thing about football teams what drives me completely insane is watching teams where you can see that the players are better than this and that they're they're made less than the sum of their parts because the team isn't put together properly. So like watching the current Man United team drives me insane. Like I just I can't cope with it. But Luton is the opposite. Like in terms of getting the most out of the the personnel available, I think this Luton team collectively are are really really quite something. As Baz said in the other day, they have one of the very, very smallest budgets in the championship. And they've done incredibly well, really, just getting absolutely everything out of that group to get into the playoffs. And I think over the two legs, <laughs> they can be, feel slightly um, disappointed, I guess. They, what happened in both the first leg and this game was that Luton did get into a lot of good positions, but they lacked just a little bit of quality with the last ball, with the last delivery, if they just had like one player who had just a little bit more guile uh, around the box, I think it would be very different. But of course, you have the budget you have. And uh, they I hope they are. I mean, it probably doesn't feel like it today, but I hope they're incredibly, incredibly proud of the season they've had. But of course, we should mention Huddersfield as well, who actually did win. And it's worth noting... Obviously not as small a budget and not as much of a fairy tale as Luton in that sense. But they are a team who quite a lot of people thought might go down ahead of the season. I was just checking that out today, just reading back, seeing a few championship season previews. And and more than one publication had tipped Huddersfield to get relegated. So, so this is also a team that has really confounded expectation this season and, and, and done very, very well. And... Like I said, it was a pretty even tie across both legs, and it's, it's not a great injustice that Huddersfield uh, got there, and it'll be interesting to would see them at Wembley. Owen says, can we hear from the panel about the problems regarding the Chelsea bid? What does this mean for the club? Are Chelsea at risk of getting shut down? What does this tell us about the previous Abramovich ownership? That's another another easy one, Philippe. Uh- <laughs> yeah, thank, thank you very much. That I appreciate the gift. Just get the, get the bleeper ready. <laughs> So so the government is concerned that the 4.25 billion takeover could collapse because Roman Abramovich's alleged refusal to accept a new sales structure proposed by ministers and the deadline is less than two weeks away. The first question I'm asking myself is that why does Roman Abramovich have anything to say in the matter? Um, but obviously he has. So we'll take that as fact. It seems the whole thing revolves um, around the, um, the famous loan, 1.5 billion which uh, should be put into uh, escrow until such a time um, when we are sure that it will be uh, put into a foundation, a charity, uh, which will benefit, or so we're told, the victims of the war in Ukraine. Uh, Details are a little bit hazy about that. But uh, I'm thinking back to the statements which were published on Chelsea's website in which that we were told that that debt had been written off and that, you know, it was not a matter anymore, but it seems to be a very important matter. But this being said, there's very little time to resolve that. 31st of May is when the license expires and it won't be renewed. So um, yes, uh, it it does throw the uh, whole thing a little bit into, um, I wouldn't say disarray, perhaps it's too big a word, but uh, there has to be doubts about whether it can be concluded or not. I mean, as it is right now, it can't be. Somebody will have to give or something we'll have to give. One point that's worth raising is, as Philippe just rightly said, the temporary license for Chelsea to operate is about to expire. Not long, actually not very long at all after that, they have to to sign up for next season's Premier League. I mean, they're really running out of time in in, in the sense of doing that, which I don't think they'll be able to do if they're a fully frozen asset, which they will be after the 31st of May, as as I understand it. And then, and at this point, certainly, I think rival fans are totally justified in asking how much longer Chelsea will be protected from the consequences of the situation. 
Because obviously for years and years, um, the money, or as it turns out, the loans from Mr. Abramovich has allowed Chelsea to compete in sporting terms at a level where perhaps the club shouldn't have been. Now, currently, they're reaping the consequences of that situation, which is that, you know, the man's had his assets frozen, which means Chelsea shouldn't be able to continue to operate, which means that by rights, they should have forfeited the rest of the season. Now, the government prevented that from happening. They they uh, intervened and allowed Chelsea to continue. Will they do so again this summer if the sale hasn't been finalized and Chelsea is still a frozen asset by the time the next season you have to sign up for the next season of the Premier League? I don't know what the answer to that question is. It's a very interesting question. Uh, we will, of course, um, find out. It's perhaps not the most important part of this, but it, it never struck me that Premier League sides would have to like just fill out a form to say we are we're planning to come back next year. You know, it's a bit like sometimes in Sunday League where you go, where did they go? Oh, oh, they just folded. Oh well, they've moved up. They've gone somewhere else. They're playing in a different park. So you know, hopefully at least this is at least a reminder to the other nineteen clubs to make sure you fill out that form. Uh, <laughs> Imagine not oh, if there was quickly... like an admin guy for, for Wolves who didn't. <laughs> yeah. So it was like, no, it's had the, <laughs> I know. went too far on the bank holiday and I forgot to fill in the register. Oh. Yeah, a former employee of Real Madrid using a fax. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um, let's move on to the far less controversial topic of the electoral campaign uh, in Africa. <laughs> <laughs> for, that FIFA are uh, currently doing. Um, Philippe. Ah, well, another hospital pass here. Thank you very much. Well, hey, look, listen, to be fair, you suggest the hospital pass no, and then I, I just absolutely. play them to you. No, I want to prove how tough I am. You know, I can sustain you know, losing a tooth and I can I can speak about Jenny Infantino and what is going on in Africa at the moment. Well, um, uh, the electoral campaign has already started. Uh, it started actually a, a, a few months ago. Uh, when forms starting uh, of support were started to be distributed by a well-known African dignitary among the uh, 54 uh, members of that confederation. Uh, it's taken on a new dimension this weekend because there was um, an election, well, an election, there was only one candidate as per usual in football matters, uh, which was the presidency of COSAFA. Now, COSAFA is the uh, sub-confederation, so to speak, uh, which is a kind of council of associations from Southern Africa. And the gentleman who was um, chosen is a chap called Arthur de Almeida e Silva, uh, who is the uh, president of the Angolan FA. Now, whether this man should be president of the Angolan FA and whether he should have been chosen uh, as president of this organization is an interesting question because uh, Mr. Almeida and Silva was convicted in court in Angola of trying to steal $10 million from a company. And this is on the statutes and, and everything. It, you know, If you have a criminal conviction against your, your name, you cannot serve in this capacity. Come on, Philippe, we've all done it. Yeah, we've all done it. $10 million, what's that? There was an amnesty which meant that Mr. Almeida and Silva uh, didn't uh, pay the fine or went to go to jail as perhaps you should have. But an amnesty is a very different thing, like, for example, having your sentence reversed on appeal and being declared you know, innocent. This is completely different. The guilt is beyond doubt, beyond reasonable doubt. And that's at least what the Angolan court decided. Now, Mr. Almeida Silva uh, has one thing going for him. He's actually a friend of Jenny Infantino. Just by chance, immediately after uh, the vote, uh, we had... Uh, I, I will quote from him, Mr. Almeida Silva said, we think that Jenny Infantino is the best candidate to um, manage world football for four more years. Uh, he showed several times his desire to develop African football and turn these uh, words into action. So basically, that's it. You've got the support of COSAFA. So then you've got to go for the other, that's 14 countries, by the way, 14 votes max. And... After that, Mr. Motsepe, the man who was basically put in place as the president of the African Confederation uh, by Gianni Infantino in March 2020, reiterated his support to a World Cup being played every two years. You, you can see how it's working. So the electoral campaign has already started. The election is next year. But we see that Gianni Infantino has already identified Africa, 54 votes out of 211, as being a stronghold for his power. And so he's placing, that's my interpretation of it, it has started, um, the campaign. It has started as we expected it to start. Uh, and we're still waiting for anybody to come uh, and declare um, themselves candidate against Mr. Infantino, who has obviously taken 
um, some uh, already is placed some distance between himself and the rest of the field. If indeed there is a rest of the field, that is where FIFA is now. What I would do to get you up there on the ballot box with him, Philippe, <laughs> Philippe Auclair, <laughs> to run FIFA, it would be a wonderful thing. I, I've got to move on. This is on a similar uh, theme. Nabil says, I'm just wondering how Gareth Ainsworth was overlooked as the manager who would do best at Eurovision. You're absolutely right. And <laughs> we apologise to Gareth Ainsworth. And a couple of questions for you, Barry, about your T-shirts. Uh, LD says, I find it interesting how Barry likes to have a dig at anyone who has an interest in football shirts at every opportunity he can. Yet uh, on back-to-back pods, he's been revealed he proudly wears T-shirts with Daffy Duck and Superman on them. Brian says, first Superman, now Daffy Duck. More on Barry's T-shirts, please. Is he a collector? Did he purchase these shirts or are they gifts? Does he wear them in earnest or ironically? Is Barry actually dot, 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 whimsical? Well, first of all, I don't have a dig at people who wear football shirts at any opportunity. I, I just think anyone over the age of 13 who wears a replica shirt is a moron, just to be clear on that. I mean, I would say, I would call that a dig. I mean, it sounds like... <laughs> no, it is. It's a dig, but it's a personal opinion. I, you're welcome to wear whatever you want. I don't particularly care, but I, I am... In- <laughs> Producer Joel says, I wore one the first time I met Barry. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, carry on. Yeah, I, I just have some t-shirts that's all i have a superman t-shirt i have a batman t-shirt i have a daffy duck t-shirt i have a several band t-shirt i have actually about 50 band t-shirts due in no small part to the fact that one of my best mates sells band t-shirts outside gigs for a living and i get many of his leftovers so uh yeah that's what is the uh, what is the band T-shirt you wouldn't be seen in public with, Barry? I have three in my wardrobe that I will not wear in public. I only I wear them in bed. Bob Dylan, uh, Fleetwood Mac, and Neil Young. <laughs> well, there we are. Um, uh, good question, Fleet. Thank you. Uh, what a wonderful place to leave it. What do you have against those three? Uh, I cannot stand Bob Dylan. Uh, Neil Young is a busker who got lucky. And the Fleetwood Mac, I love Fleetwood Mac, but the Fleetwood Mac t-shirt isn't aesthetically pleasing. There we are. Uh, so if anyone has a, an aesthetically pleasing Fleetwood Mac t-shirt and it's coming to the live shows, uh, we can do a trade for a brand new Football Weekly t-shirt, uh, which we are releasing as merchandise very soon. Uh, but look, that is enough for today. Thanks, Baz. Uh, you're welcome. Uh, cheers, Lars. And thank you, Philippe. De rien, mon cher Max. Football Weekly was produced by Joel Grove with Silas Gray. Our executive producer is Danielle Stevens. This is The Guardian.